to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, it's a mega show. We have Dave House from The Loved Ones, Painted Black, The Curse. He also had this incredible career behind the scenes in music, too. We, we get to a lot of stuff in this little short episode with him, and he's going to be back for more. I can spoil alert because this one's short. But it is awesome. But if that was not enough, also on today's show, I am putting up live from the Kingston Film Festival a, a panel discussion that I did for Turn It to Punk and the Kingston Film Festival featuring DJ NDN, Chris Callahan returning to the show, both of them, Chris O'Toole, co-host of Footnotes, friend of the show, family of the show, and Matt Johnson from Nirvana, the band of the show. But first... If you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to DamianAbraham.com. There's an email address there. You can write me an email. You can also find me on various forms of social media, at Damien. And if you use Facebook, you can check out the Facebook page run by my brother, Tristan Abraham. He's also kind of the now becoming the producer of the show. He's the producer of the show. Tristan Abraham, you are now the producer of this show. Um, <laughs> You got a promotion on air, buddy. Uh, he's also my brother. You can send him a message. He'll get the message to me. Uh, he also checks that email address and gets the messages to me because right now things are going kind of crazy. I'll get to that in a second, too. Uh, you can also, if you want to support this show, go to iTunes, write a review, rate it, and subscribe to it. And tell your friends about it if you don't use iTunes because spread the word. I know these aren't coming out very frequently right now, but spread the word because they will be coming back more frequently soon, I hope. But I will keep doing them, so don't worry. They're going to keep coming for you. Um, whether you like it or not. <laughs> so that's how you can support the show. Uh, right now, why this show has... Well, it's got a little something to do with the fact that I'm recording this wrestling TV show right now. In fact, I'm doing this intro from my hotel room overlooking the beautiful mountains of La Paz, Bolivia. I'm down here shooting an episode about the fighting Cholitas. It's going to blow your mind. Everything that we're doing around here is going to blow your mind. Uh, this is going to be a really cool cool project. But unfortunately, that has meant that this podcast has suffered a little bit. Footnotes are coming out sporadically. Clobbering time hasn't come out in God knows how long. Oil and Flowers is coming out sporadically. These are all other podcasts in the Turn Out of Punk family, for those of you unfamiliar. Uh, and also, uh, Footnotes hasn't come out very often as of late. But I assure you, it's not because I don't want to do these things. It's just because it's been really hectic right now, uh, running around recording the show. Um, but once again, this thing's going to be amazing. I can't wait for you to see it. But that, my friends, is in the future, and I want to talk about the present. Because presently, on today's show, we got a blockbuster. First of all, we have Dave House. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Dave House, which I'm sure is the vast majority of you, uh, you know him as a member of The Loved Ones, someone who was in Paint It Black, someone that was in The Curse. I just realized we have someone from The Curse on the show today and someone from Cursed on the show today. Uh, too bad Mickey's skin wasn't here from Curse. And then we could have all three. But anyway, uh, he's also had an incredible kind of career behind the scenes in music. He wrote for Sick of It All. He wrote for Kid Dynamite. You know, he's been a guy who has been a key figure in Philadelphia, you know, punk hardcore for a long time now. And I've wanted to have him on the show for a very long time. So thankfully, my good buddy, Alex McDonald, thank you, Alex, kind of set this all in motion. She's a mutual friend of both of ours and and made this happen when he was in town with the Bronx. And also, don't worry, the Bronx are going to be on the show soon, I promise, because they are great friends as well, and it was good seeing them when I recorded this. But as you can tell, we didn't have a lot of time. It's a shorter episode. But don't let that fool you. There's a lot of amazing stuff in this short episode. 
um, one footnote correction type thing. Uh, the band I think we're thinking of is Turmoil. So I'm going to let you sit back, relax, and enjoy Dave House on Turned Out a Punk. Dave, this is awesome. Finally. Yeah. Finally yeah. making this happen. Um, as we've been talking off air on the great podcast that no one will ever hear, <laughs> uh, this is something I've wanted to do for a while. Yeah, and likewise. there's a lot of places we can take it, but we got to start the same place I start them all off, which is... How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I do. Um, the first band I ever heard that was a punk rock band was The Clash. I was into uh, just sort of the typical radio rock of the 80s, and I was really into music, uh, inordinately uh, into music as a young kid. Um, and my uncle was into The Clash. He thought The Clash were super cool and uh, turned me on to London Calling. Is this Pennsylvania area, Philadelphia? Philadelphia, yeah. yeah. So I think I had, like, Brian Adams' Reckless. Okay. I had the Hooters' Nervous Night record. <laughs> yes. I had the Heart record that was just entitled Heart, where they had, like, other songwriters come in, and it was super catchy. Um, and then, like, I sort of had the backlog of my folks' tight tastes, you know, like Rolling Stones and, and Bob Dylan and the Beatles and all that stuff, but those bands seemed like theirs. Yeah. And then my uncle Bob loved The Clash and like Elvis Costello and stuff like that. I guess and the Hooters are kind of like a more radio rock version of that new wave kind of sound, right? I would think, yeah. I mean, they were influenced by it. They just were really good at playing music. Yeah. Which, you know, that's kind of hard to sell as as related to punk, especially in the 80s. Yeah, you know? definitely. Um, but uh, yeah, it would, it would have been The Clash. And then, but honestly... It really was more the misfits later. So, so if you can think of like a seven or eight year old kid hearing the Clash, it's like, oh, this is cool. But the the rage that's associated with like finding your first punk band was via metal. I was one of those um, kids that like I got progressively into more and more aggressive music. So by sixth grade, I was listening to Aerosmith. I okay. thought that that was you know like you know the Pump record. Yeah. And uh, that kind of wasn't quite cutting the mustard for 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 my. Uh, <laughs> Jenny's got a gun is a hard song though, but it not, is yeah. yeah, and they're a great band. I mean, they're one of my favorites. But uh, my friend Brendan, who I ended up being in Step Ahead and the Curse with, he turned me on to Iron Maiden and Metallica. Okay, and that was my. I was one of those like metal into punk kind of things, and so saw that Metallica had covered the Misfits, and that was my favorite song on on Garage Days, and then went full bore into the Misfits. So where were you getting records at this time? Were you like, were there a local store, or is it... Yeah, well, there were... Or Phillies or whatever. Yeah, right. Philly was, uh, let's see, it would have been like Zipperheads, and um, my local uh, neighborhood shop was certainly more geared towards the, the, um, the singer-songwriter world, <laughs> yeah. but the guy that runs at Main Street Music, uh, Pat, he was a replacements man. Okay. And so I was kind of going in there and saying, like, oh, I need a Testament record or this record or that, and he started to steer me away from metal and was like, check out the replacements and check out Who's Do. And that was probably a little bit later, maybe like a year or two after I was already into Metallica and Suicidal, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was sort of, I was sort of getting into it right as those bands were really peaking you know Metallica 
this was right before the Black Album, so they were touring on Justice and stuff. And yeah, and there was like I, I felt like the Black Album would become almost like a ubiquitous record, but mm-hmm. there was that moment where there was still kind of just before that happened. That's when I yeah. that's when I started to get into I guess whatever for whatever you want to label it. I mean, aggressive or or or. Um, alternative to to mainstream music mm-hmm. and then that was the way I got into punk and so then then it was like sort of Misfits and Danzig and, and things like that and then I didn't I guess The Clash came right back up right around then uh, because that association Minor Threat and all those things mm-hmm. and then uh, it took a couple more years I was a little I was maybe about 16 so a few more years later when I started to really dive into hardcore. So what had you gone to any concerts or shows before this? What was well, your first concert? The first concert was the Hooters. Oh. Yeah. So that You were like a true Philadelphia song. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> In fact, that's what the crazy thing about that is is this new record that we just released was the coming together of me and the singer of the Hooters. He produced the record. Really? Yeah. I had no fucking yeah, idea. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. He got introduced to me through uh, a local Philadelphia DJ you yeah. know, that, that was like, oh, she found out that my first show was the Hooters as like a seven-year-old. Yeah. And she was like, oh, I'm friends with Eric. You, he would probably like what you do. So she put us together. We became friends. He came down and we covered and we danced at the Philadelphia show on my last record. That's awesome. We became friends and then it led to him producing this record. Yeah. So it was like, for me, him producing it was a childhood rock hero. You yeah. know, it was my first concert. That'd so, be like Kim Mitchell producing a record for me or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. So yeah, the Hooters were the first show, and then I guess my were the, who, sorry were they did they play by themselves? Or were they on like yeah? A, they this was their their big they like the Tower Theater in Philadelphia holds about twenty five hundred people. Okay, and they have the record for the most consecutive sellouts ahead of Bruce Springsteen wow. at that venue. Yeah. So they, New Jersey's got nothing on Philadelphia and Philadelphia. <laughs> right. So yeah, they uh they were on that tear uh on, on their like their first big successful record and I saw them on that run. That's so who would they have played with? Like what scene would they they're huge obviously in Philadelphia, but like what scene would they've kind of fit into? I'm not sure. I think that may have been why over time it was hard for them to find yeah. you know like a like a uh, countrywide audience mm-hmm. because they were pretty specific. I, kn- I know that they supported Brian Adams. Okay, they did a tour with him. I know they supported Squeeze. Okay, um, yeah, I guess that's where they kind of fit in, like that kind of like weird middle ground, like yeah, ra- radio friendly new wave. But they're super beatly, like yeah. they're very much. They got songs in that. Yeah, they're very much in that realm, and I think maybe by the eighties, I'm not sure what. What would have made sense? Maybe Tom Petty. Would, yeah. But but they were also maybe too pop for that. I don't know. But um, but yeah, at the time they were just on top of the world with a hit record, and and I didn't know any better. Like I just thought they were cool and mm-hmm. loved that record, and was eight years old. And you know, in fact, in the new video that we're about to put out for for a song on this record, I cast my nephew as me as a kid <laughs> falling in love with my record and at the end there's a picture of me holding the Hooters record that's yeah, awesome yeah. so it all goes back to Hooters yeah yeah totally totally that's, especially for this album yeah. yeah well and I guess like so where would you have gotten into them the local radio would they have been playing local all the time? radio would have been the way yep and uh and again it, for, for whatever reason as a young kid it felt like my band like a band that was was 
made for me instead of my parents. My parents liked them, mm-hmm. but it was like, oh, this is uh, this is for me. This is a record I discovered, you know that. And I thought I discovered uh, Lionel Richie as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had that record too. But we all thought we discovered Lionel. Yeah, we did. We yeah. we did it all together yeah. as, as a world <laughs> collective discovery. Yeah. <laughs> so where did you kind of go from? Um, like you're into these metal bands, or you go to the Hooters show? What's your next show after that? Well, I think I went to see Tommy Conwell, which was, he was a local guitar hero kind of thing in Philly. Tommy Conwell? Yeah, he uh, he had like a, a minor hit. Was he the Jimi Hendrix guy that would dress up like Jimi Hendrix? No, 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 no. Tommy Conwell was part of that same kind of Hooters world, like maybe managed by the same people or something. But um, he was just a... A guitar slinger, awesome guy that that uh, that had like a local radio hit. That would be my second show. But as far as punk shows, it's not even punk, just any music shows. Like I think that's the thing about the, the music at that time is it's like, like the Hooters. It's all kind of punk informed. Like a little bit, yeah. I would say that it, when I started to f- to to notice a big difference, it would have been the Dead Milkmen. Yeah, going to see them at the Trocadero. Um, and the boss tones were, were brewing up. You know, by that time, I was going to shows, like, by myself more, or with my friends, not with my parents. Yeah. My parents probably took me to uh, some contemporary Christian music shows. Like, I went to see Amy Grant. Okay. And, uh, you, know, you know, stuff like that as a kid. But I would say I became aware of a punk scene more through, like, uh, the boss tones, the Dead Milk Men. And, and then I saw Seven Seconds at the Troc, too, which was, like, I was like, oh, what is this? You know, what... So were there like local bands that were kind of ha- like what were some of the local bands that you were into other than like the the bigger radio bands like I guess Dead Milkman it would have right? been Dead Milkman but they I mean it was pretty like for as cool as Philly is now it was pretty stark you know there wasn't there was <laughs> not a whole lot that I remembered coming out of Philly that was that was worthwhile that was like great you know yeah. I don't think and 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 honestly you could make a case for kind of Kid Dynamite breathing a lot of the life back into the scene and that's way later I mean you're talking about that must have been like 97 or 98 but um, it's been a fan town of music for a long time and not necessarily uh, a, a participant in like especially in in like having bands that would go all over the world and play yeah that was sort of New York or DC yeah there's like very few that I can think of that like, yeah Pagan Babies yeah um, I'm trying why to why Die didn't really make it out uh, no, I'm trying to think. McRad did a little bit. McRad, yeah, McRad, but again, FOD a little bit. FOD a bit, but but these were like very fringy yeah. and specific yeah. <laughs> niche things. Like there wasn't a band that united the city, other than maybe the Dead Milkmen, you know, because yeah. they also had like a, a hit. But again, it's it's weird as an adult to view what you were viewing as a kid. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if the Dead Milkmen brought everybody together in Philly or not, <laughs> or they just happened to have a weird hit. Yeah, you know, because punk rock girl. I, was, I mean, that was a significant thing. Oh, God, that was like, you know, it's still played today. Yeah. It's still like a, a, one of the, I would say that was like one of the biggest novelty songs kind of make it out of punk. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like, for years I thought that was all that band was and then it's like, you're like, oh no, they're like a really important band that yeah. put out all these seminal classic records. Totally, yeah. And so I was sort of, um, you know, the metal kid who was into all kinds of weird uh, music in the dish pit, you know, at the at the local restaurant, and me and all my pals would work in the kitchen, and you know, it was as much listening to Prong and Primus and things like that as it was Minor Threat or 
the Misfits. Like, it was all fair game. Mm -hmm. There wasn't necessarily... I think later it, it, it was clear to me that there was, like, a scene and there were rules to that scene. You know, you couldn't like certain things and all that. That was later for me. That was, like, um, you know, I was probably 17 or something. Yeah, because it doesn't... I don't know, like, what was the scene like at that point? Like, is it? I, I can't think of too many local bands. Like, who are some of the local bands other than the Dead Milkman that... Well, was it, was it then there was, there was, like, Yeah, yeah, there was, like, Rain on the Parade. They, yeah. were, they were a thing for a minute, and... Um, That's almost Ink like and the, Dagger. Ink yeah. and Dagger, that was one that, that made a ripple, for yeah, sure. Yeah, um, But I'm trying That's to That's kind of later, too, right? It is later, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, like... For me, though, I, I, I guess the other big piece of the puzzle I'm leaving out would be right around that same time of Metallica and uh, and the Misfits was Nirvana and Pearl Jam, mm -hmm. you know. And th those bands, to me, if I'm fair, th those were like big revelations, you know. And yeah. Soundgarden, yeah. you know, seeing that on MTV and having and like buying those records and being like, oh wow, this seems connected in some weird way to the Misfits and the Clash as well. I wasn't quite sure of how it all worked out. Bad Religion was mm -hmm. another one, you know, mm -hmm. having that that early, I guess it was 80 to 85, I had that on tape. And, uh, but but locally, it, I, I didn't become as aware of the scene until later, you know, and it, and it almost seemed like to go to see a real scene, for me, at my age, it was like going up to New York. You'd go yeah. to CB's Madden and be like, oh, that's how it works. Yeah, because there's like frail... Frail, Lifetime. yeah, that's right. Lifetime was around, yeah, yeah. but Avail seemed to play Philly Avail quite a for, bit, yeah, and uh, and, and they seemed almost more like a Philly band that that, that united everybody mm -hmm. more so than than a Philly band. They were like the band that united everyone everywhere. It felt I like know, I know. They were they were such an awesome band. It was such a treat to go on tour with them later when I uh, had the curse. Yeah, we, that was like the one tour we did was opening for them, and uh, I remember knowing that it was special like that was a really special band yeah I, I kind of it's funny too they haven't had a second act in the way that they they should you know I don't think they will Tim, no you don't think no Tim Tim claims that's it he won't do it but I mean even like not even that they have to tour it but oh. I mean like even like a, another you know assessment where everyone's like oh yeah this band why aren't we talking about this band right now Maybe this will spark it. Maybe I don't know. I've been, I've been trying a lot, Dave. <laughs> I've been really pushing for people to start talking about this again. I love Avail. I thought that they were uh, they were the band that could play with any other band, yeah. you know, and, and, and it would work. And that's rare because they were kind of doing more of a rock and roll thing mm -hmm. than, than, you know, you could see them play with Snapcase or see them sick of it all. And, and they would hold their own. Yeah. And then still were, were really, like, song-based. I think I saw them one time with... Um, like tragedy oh, no his hero's gone yeah 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 that makes <laughs> sense and it, was yeah. a, uh, <laughs> and it worked you're right like it worked it, so yeah so I guess where did you kind of go now that you're kind of going to shows like where, did, where are you playing music by this point yes um, I played so yeah my deep dive into punk was probably 15 16 and I discovered that there was sort of a scene and an underground thing going on um you know, started to go to Robbie Redcheek's shows, mm -hmm. and uh, that was really straight edgy. You know, that was yeah. like that was well, that was Rain on the Parade, I guess. Yeah, right? Rain on the Parade, and like Ten Yard Fight would yeah. come and play. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess that was all sort of youth of today uh, influenced. Yeah. And for me, that was like, eh, I don't know. Like musically, it wasn't as compelling to me. Like a lot of that stuff seemed more like about 
being straight edge, mm-hmm. and we weren't straight edge. We were like neighborhood rats that liked <laughs> metal and hardcore. And so we sort of had our own take on all of it and didn't necessarily uh, jive. We weren't really offered those shows. We, we had a band called Step Ahead. That was my first band. Okay. And we were sort of a neighborhood... Did you guys record Sibet? We did. We recorded a record that Colin McGinnis put out. So Colin went on to... We both wrote it for Kid Dynamite. And then he's he played with None More Black. He's in H2O now. And Colin was like, I'm going to start a record label. And Step Ahead is going to be the first release. And uh, we didn't know even what that meant. You know, he's like, wow, I'm going to put you in the studio and you're going to pay for that. And I'll press <laughs> up the CDs. <laughs> and so he pressed up a thousand CDs. And uh, 700 of them probably lived in his northeast of uh, Philly uh, garage, yeah. you know. And uh, I think he ended up throwing most of them away, you know. <laughs> so when did you start playing music? That was, well, I started playing music when I was about 12 or 13. We started to play, like, with a lot of those same guys that, that uh, we did Step Ahead together. But my friend Brendan and I would play in his his uh, mom's basement in a, in our little Roxboro um, neighborhood, which was like northwest of the, of the downtown of Philly. Okay. And uh, and again, it was just like us tinkering around trying to, like you know, we liked Pantera, we liked mm-hmm. uh, Prong, and and uh, Sick of It All, and sort of made our way into the scene over a couple years through the through the back door mm-hmm. of like metal or something, but um. Yeah, so so by the time Step Ahead played, I think that was like '96. So what were the what was those earlier bands called? Do you have any names? Yeah, we had a band called Vespertilian. Vespertilian, yeah, which meant creature of the night. That's awesome. In Latin, yeah, yeah, we had that band, and I, I was really young then. And then I was in a band called Inhumane, with uh, which was a little better. I guess I don't know. It, it was pr- all pretty bad, and we never really recorded. Wasn't anything. there an Inhumane also from New York? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Okay. yeah uh-huh. you, were, no, you weren't in that. No, one. no, no, okay. no, no, no. That's no. the dude from Shutdown's brother. Right, right, right. That, or no, no, that was Inhuman. Oh, I'm thinking that inhuman. was Inhuman. Yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. Inhuman. Sorry. Um, so yeah, Step Ahead was like the first band, band where we would okay. like play shows with, like we opened for Hatebreed and opened for Sick of It All and stuff like that. But again, that was like at that point I was 17 or 18. And that's when I was more involved with like the local Philadelphia scene, which at that point was super, super violent. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Step Ahead was sort of like we're a step ahead of all the negative energy or whatever. <laughs> and I think there's another band called Step Ahead as well. I think there was like from Boston, maybe to maybe like a youth band. From yeah, like, I'm sure. I'm a sure. Community Chess Records, maybe. That sounds right. Yeah, I remember looking up on. The Rev Distro, I think it was, and be like, shit, there's already a step ahead, but we've already played shows. But yeah, our first show with Step Ahead was, uh, it was like one of those 10 band bills at uh, Beaver College at the time. Okay. And it was H2O, Fury of Five, Whoa. a bunch of other like gnarly bands, and then we were like the first or second band on the bill. Wow. Yeah. You had me at. Fury of Five and H2O play together yeah, in '95. Yeah, be, it was wild. I could only imagine what that at, in, in like suburban Philadelphia you know, <laughs> at a college. It was so weird. But there were some uh, some worlds colliding that day. Indeed, indeed. Um, so uh, yeah, like I guess like because you guys, you know, you're saying you don't really fit in with that 
you know, the straight edge stuff, that youth crew revival stuff that's happening, and you know, you don't fit in with the other stuff, this kind of heavier violent scene. Like, was there like a scene that you guys kind of fit into? Well, I mean, looking back, I guess we did develop a little, uh, a little thing of our own, you know, like I think our last show we did at Stalag by that point, but but you know, by the time Kid Dynamite formed and we played some shows with them, it mm. seemed like, I mean, they were just such a awesome band like they were so so great at what they were doing that uh they created a niche where some other stuff was kind of allowed yeah or whatever you know what i mean yeah um and by the time we did our last show we played at the stalag and it was like a successful show and people came out and you know maybe two two or three hundred people to say goodbye to step ahead <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah we would just sort of play with whoever we played with shut down and we played you know we got some cool opening slots i guess towards the end but we we would just play anywhere we would play joe hardcore put on some shows in northeast philly and you know in like weird spaces that we'd play with like super heavy bands um who was the band who was the band that uh was getting kind of popular in philly at the time they were like really heavy um like what kind of heavy nah it was like in that failure kind of like not realm it was they were called not kill the man of questions no kill the man ended up being friends of ours and, and Bo from kill the man ended up playing the curse that okay yeah the next yeah that's what I, yeah, I knew you guys had sure yeah um but no 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 it was uh Oh, who was that? It was, it was a band you definitely know. Uh, Jamie was one of the guys in the band. They shared a space with Kid Dynamite. I can't remember what they were called, but they we we would we played a couple shows with them. Now, now, now I'm now I'm racking my brain trying to figure out who this is. They were a popular yeah. band. I just they're on the tip of my tongue and I can't remember who they were. Um, but they were a. I'll fix this in the intro. Yeah, yeah. Who were thinking in the intro? I mean, we're talking about a long time ago, you know. It, but uh, but yeah. So I had a very strange. Uh, I had a very strange journey, I guess, when it comes to punk. I wasn't part of the scene really until later, um, and our little scene felt like it was a sort of cast out. Mm-hmm. Of like you know, like Robbie wouldn't put us on shows because he didn't like our record cover, which was, which was like us, <laughs> as a drawing of us as superheroes defending the city. Which we were nerds, you know, like we were we were super nerdy and weren't down really with straight edge. We liked to smoke pot and yeah. like to get drunk and stuff, and so we didn't really fit in there. And then Ink and Dagger was doing their thing, which we certainly didn't fit in with. That was like a wild, wild party. Yes, probably indeed. beyond pot. Way beyond, yeah. Like I remember seeing them in a, at the at that um, punk house over there in Fairmount. Was that like the Castle Grayskull? I don't think. I think it was before then. Okay. I think it was called Three One Two House. Okay, okay. Yeah. And being like, holy shit, these guys are on a whole different. You know, <laughs> yeah. This isn't just like drinking in the woods. This is like oblivion. You yeah. know that you know, and feeling like holy shit. Yeah. But um, there's apparently a documentary. That's never gonna come out because Eric Warehouse just like I'm not gonna put it out ever. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, the stories that I heard later were. I mean, it was. It was. I think it was a pretty dark realm. Yeah, it was. It was pretty. A lot of human ugliness. I think was surrounding that. And it's weird because like I don't know maybe because I was young and naive then, but like it just felt like that was just so out of what most of the bands in hardcore were like. like yeah, I couldn't. There weren't too many bands at that point that were on that sort of trip. Yeah, I know. It was it was weird. I kind of missed the boat on it. Uh, I saw that show and 
and what was the what was the other band? Christ was a band that played that same show. Then maybe Crud as a Cult. Okay. Played. Yeah. And I remember feeling like just like anything else, like I was like, oh, this is this is cool. I was up for whatever. Like I was into all kinds of music. Mm-hmm. I was the kid that liked Tori Amos and Jane's Addiction and Minor Threat and all yeah. that. So to me, I was like, oh, just fired up on music. But it was clicky. It was like a clicky scene where you couldn't really be into. You know, you were like a rain on the parade guy, or you were. That's that's the way I perceived it too. You had to pick a, a team. You did, and I was like, I don't want to pick a team. That, that, and I'm still that way. Yeah. Like that's still the way I roll to this day. Like I'm still like, yeah. I, I just, How do you even be into other stuff now in a way you couldn't then? You can now, yeah. And it's and and I think a lot of people had to kick down a lot of doors in order mm-hmm. for punk to be the accepting thing that it always promised. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the Joe Strummer ethos yeah. is what I always... I was always like, wait, I thought we were doing the Joe Strummer thing. Yeah. Like, why do we have to, to pick teams? But I think, like... I mean, looking back on it, there was a, all these other factors that sort of informed why that was, and things like straight edge and hardcore and all these, like, little associate. It's like being a Christian, you know? Like, like by the time you have the Reformation, you know, you're like, oh, we're going to break away from the Catholic Church. By the, you know, twenty years later or two hundred years later, it's like there's so many little tiny denominations. Like yep. we baptize like this, and that sets us apart. And I feel like that with punk. It's like they made this big stance early, and which was awesome. You know, they broke away from the mainstream. But by the time you get to the '90s, it's like, well, I'm into thugcore. Well, I'm straight edge, or you know, like. And it, by that point, it was like. I thought we all just kind of like the Ramones. I don't. I don't get all this. Well, I think it's like you know we we're talking about this kind of off air, but it's like everyone's got their baggage yeah. that they bring, yeah. and it's amazing like how punk, which is always meant to be outside of society, like people find a way to replicate society within its confines. Yeah, it's really true. And and one of the things, it's funny because when I started to play solo, I was, I was kind of had my head up my own, my ass about like I want to be considered to be a songwriter and I got to get away from the punk thing like it's too confining or it's got too many rules and I think over the course of the last couple of years I just let all that stuff go I don't care like if, if you want you know, if you're looking to describe the show in a weekly and it's like punk rock singer songwriter, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. You know, like whatever uh, alerts people to the fact that I'm going to be in town. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm fine with it. But one of the things that I've kind of taken comfort in as like a, you know, at this point, a 39 year old punk rocker is the fact that we were right. Mm-hmm. We were right about so much of it. Like when I was a kid, the thing that we would sort of get made fun of or 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 uh, like beaten up for or whatever was the fact that we liked the misfits and we liked comic books and we uh, you know we were into maybe and then later like vegetarianism and, and veganism and all these things that now have permeated culture you know now superhero movies the X-Men movies are the biggest movies there are mm-hmm. and the misfits can headline riot fest to whatever 80,000 people and we're living in a propaganda song yeah well that's true <laughs> right, right. but I mean one of the things that I kind of like because it's fine to me that all that stuff's been co-opted I mean it is what it is like I don't I'm not so precious with yeah. it where I'm like ooh like I'm happy for anybody to find music mm-hmm. and find culture and stuff like that but I think the one like chip on my shoulder thing that I can hold on to is like we were right we were right back then and and the fact that you know Nirvana is classic rock now means that I mean, it cut through. Mm-hmm. It was a cool thing. It was a cool 
uh, alternative to to the bullshit. I mean, granted, I don't know how to like live with the fact that Limp Biscuit came in the wake of that, but but uh, it's funny because like I was I saw guys having a debate yesterday about whether or not Corn was a classic band. <laughs> It's like right. we are living dangerously close to a world where Limp Bizkit gets critically reassessed in the way that I want a veil to, and people are like, "They're pretty good." Yeah, I know, I know. I don't know that I can live through that. I way, know it's so scary to think about. It really is, but but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I guess what uh, I don't know. It seems a lot more comfortable to to put Soundgarden and Nirvana and, yeah. and Pearl Jam in that well, sort of realm, but I guess Limp Bizkit's next. Like, we don't hear Extreme on the radio in the same way you hear Nirvana and, and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam now. No, right? Warrant, Warrant, Warrant went no. away. Yeah, exactly. Like, that stuff's kind of like, so maybe that'll be Limp Bizkit. I believe it will. I can't, I mean, did they play them on the radio? Limp Bizkit? They did. Definitely. No, no, I mean, oh, like, but is, do they it, now? is it part of classic rocks? I don't think so yet, but I think we're still like one generation away from that becoming the classic rock zeitgeist like you know well you know he, uh, here's an example would be i guess blink yeah blink is now sort of being considered as like a classic band which is bizarre to me like yeah, they well, seemed so far away from blink is our beatles deftones <laughs> are our led zeppelin and this is the new reality <laughs> oh man all right and well, we're living in a propaganda song and we're living in a propaganda song i like that i think that's uh, that's certainly true uh, but yeah, that, that that I think is one of the biggest takeaways is that we were right. Yeah, and, and it's vindicating to be like, all that stuff we thought was cool is cool. Yeah, and in and, and twenty years later, it's what everybody wants. You know, like young people who shop at Urban Outfitters buy a Misfit shirt. Well, I just think about the number of punk people I, or people I know through punk or through liking their bands that have gone on to do amazing things yeah. all over pop culture and culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. The, the aesthetic that was established by like Arturo and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff you know one thing I, I'm curious to hear what you think is like why didn't why didn't New York hardcore or even for that matter DC hardcore like why weren't those things why didn't they cut through I think they cut through now you know like now you see it but like at the time it was just too too abrasive you think so yeah like I think like it still sounds scary to it me. It still now. sounds scary, right? Yeah. Like right that's right. the thing is, like, I think it's still like, you know, like you hear abused, and even though that record came out in '82, it still sounds scary, right? All these years later, and then like you know, Madball, it's still real. It's <laughs> real as hell. It's yeah. real, and but like, why wouldn't Madball be like the biggest? Like, why Mad? Why not Madball and Why Limp Bizkit? Like to yeah. me, like Freddie is the realest deal, and and. Because they weren't singing about hot dogs, flavored water, and chocolate starfishes. Yeah, right? they but they were about, singing about stuff that was sort of more in line with hip hop. Yeah, you know? yeah. And hip hop, obviously, like gangster rap and all that stuff was so. Yeah, which I never understood that, and and I think like, you know, I worked for Sick of It All. That was the first touring I I really did, and they were struggling with that. They were like, what? You know, they knew that they were like at that point a legendary band but, yeah. but that but they were like well, why aren't why isn't it working in the mainstream and I never understood why that didn't cut through that seems so cool to me I think it's like I guess I guess it's because it's too real right? maybe like so. it, and maybe like hip hop's an anomaly that way but like yeah and metal too I guess there's some real metal that always cuts through yeah yeah it's just it seems a little tragic to me that like that those bands aren't set up for good you no know? But, you know, maybe it'll happen, because we live in a world now where uh, Anthony Bourdain 
is using Harley Flanagan's music on a CNN you're show. Right. So you're right. anything you're right. can happen. Like, who you're knows? right. You're right. Who knows what what causes second and third acts? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I think that's um, you know we're at this point. Well, like you know Trevor from Vice used to manage Sick Vidal, who now is like running Vice Music or you know. Oh, that's right. You know, that's right. Yeah, when I worked for them, he was he was just start like I think they were just. Severing that relationship, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, That's right. So there are these people that have kind of been in that world that have gone on, like Michael Lago, who we're talking mm-hmm. about off air, ends up signing Metallica, yeah, and he's like a New York hardcore guy, and right? So you get these like these, you can see how it impacted the culture, yeah. And yeah. I guess you're right. I guess it did. It just it's not in the same way that like, I mean, I guess you can't Beastie Boys, Beastie Boys. I guess you're right. Yeah, that that was probably the. The big and you don't get any bigger than the beast. No, no. So I suppose you're right that that it did cut through. But you're right. Way. Like it never cut through, and like it's not like yeah, Madball was ever able. Like I would, it was. I would sit sometimes. We were on that this crazy stadium tour when Metallica was on, and I would sit back in the stadium and just put in my headphones and listen to all these bands and just picture like. What would it be like if Judge played a stadium like this? Like you know, like listening to this music, <laughs> right? Like watching the like little ants on stage move around, just being like, oh, how cool would it be? But yeah, like, maybe in the parallel dimension, there's maybe that Mad so. Ball, fifty thousand people, Buenasari show. I sure would like to see it. I would. I would be moshing. Yeah, no, it'd be a yeah. terrifying pit. <laughs> it'd be very, <laughs> right. Like maybe that's the thing. Is like, could you imagine if that became popular? Like Mad Ball became popular, everyone would just be too real. It would be, yeah, it would be a bloodbath. People would be walking down the street flipping the mad ball switch. It would be... <laughs> We'd be setting it off worldwide. <laughs> We'd be setting it off worldwide. It would be... Yeah. It, it's too real. Yeah, too maybe real. you're right. Maybe you're right. Too to handle. But no, I think about that all the time. Like, why not this band? Like, you know... Yeah. Like, and with punk, too. Like... I suppose you're right. Yeah. Why? Like, why was it this band and not the band right beside them that, you know... Sure. Sure. And at this point, there's been so many cycles of that that it... You know, now it doesn't even matter. You know, you you, you kind of see, you see lifetime not really quite get it, get it, mm-hmm. get the brass ring or whatever you want to call it. The, and then you see saves the day. You see like, saves the day. Yeah, yeah look what we but did. Then, but then again, you know, it saves the day. You, over time, like I've oh yeah, Chris has like got that crazy yeah. knack for songs. You know, he's got songs. Like, yeah, absolutely. The thing. And, yeah. And, and 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 they've developed far beyond my. Late '90s assessment of them as being the lifetime ripoff. Band. Exactly. Yeah, they, that was one album. And that by the time he album. got to his second record, he was on a whole other trip. I'm still but, at heckling him about where, where's the guy from Mouthpiece. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, see, there that was a band, Mouthpiece. They were a big deal in Philly when we were trying to get things going, and and that seemed like, you know, something we certainly wouldn't have fit in with. It was like, yeah, Mouthpiece, uh, Floor Punch was another yep. big one that everybody was wild for. That it, I just. That at that point it seemed more like sports to me, mm-hmm. and I was like, I thought we were going the other way. Like I thought we were doing music for togetherness. This seems more like like a sports team. Kind I of think thing. maybe because we were in the backwaters of Canada, like mm-hmm. it felt like you didn't have to do it in the same way you would have in Philadelphia, where you had to be like, I'm the youth crew kid, or yeah, I'm like the progressive political straight edge kid that likes frail. Or, right, that was a whole other yeah, trip, like right. a whole other thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess. It, maybe it just seemed like that because I was a kid and, and it was sort of scary but and it was very violent everything was very very violent those mm-hmm. shows would always have shows breaking or uh, uh, fights breaking out those fights would always have shows breaking it out there would, uh, would always be a little bit of music during that fight <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, but yeah I guess I guess maybe 
yeah, who knows, man. It, it, it's hard to, like, sort of view it through the adult lens. Like, Yeah, it's really, it's actually terrifying now as a parent to think about, like, what would I think when my child, who's still a child at this point, starts to want to go to these shows where there's, like, these brawls and battles. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, right Look on cue, our friend Carol walks friend in. Friend of the baby. show, Carol. Friend of the show. Hello. How's it going? <laughs> and Cole making his podcast debut. Hey, Cole. Doing the metal sign We're finger sign. We're talking about fights at shows, buddy. He's <laughs> very serious. He's like, bring it on. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know what, Dave? I want to do part two and three with you. We should, but yeah. this is a good point to wrap because you've Sounds got to play good. a show. I do, man. And I have to play a... Uh, a show at the Bronx. We got to get into the New York years. We got to get yeah, into yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sick of it all working. God, and all there's that so shit. much stuff to get into. Yeah, we'll get to it for sure. But thank you so much thank for doing you, this. Thank you, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Dave, for coming on the show. Now, Dave, of course, we'll be back for a part two and a part three and a part four because I got a lot more to ask him about. But now we got to move on to the Kingston Film Festival. Super Show, the Kingston Film Festival Live Super Show. That's what I think I'm going to call that from now on. Uh, it features DJ NDN from A Tribe Called Red, one of my favorite people in the whole world, returning to the show. Also, Chris Collin, another one of my favorite people from in the whole world, from The Cursed, Countdown to Oblivion, The Swarm, Left for Dead, et cetera, et cetera, returning to the show. And family of the show, Chris O'Toole, host of Footnotes, back here doing this live. And also it features Matt Johnson from a very funny show, Nirvana the Band the Show. So I can't really set this up too much for you because it's just like a free-for-all panel discussion. Uh, Maybe I should try and figure out who talks first and who talks second so that way you can know by the voice. Ah, I think you'll figure it out. You know, if you listen to the show enough, you'll know. Um, (laughs) It's a fun conversation about media, the changing face of media, um, anyway, so sit back, relax, and I believe it's me first, then Matt from Nirvana the Band the Show, then Ian, and then Chris Callahan, or maybe Chris O'Toole. Anyway, half the fun's figuring out who's talking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy live from the Kingston Film Festival. Turned out a punk. Check. I've got this program. It's, it's going to be words. fine. Interview. Interview. <laughs> Interview. This is like your show, but for real. Like, I'm not playing a character in this level of disorganization. I believe you. I'm <laughs> like this fun. <laughs> Some Andy Kaufman shit. Oh, I'm deep. I'm yeah. deep. Thank you so much for joining us for Turn Out a Punk. Thank you for sticking around. That was hilarious again. I think, really, like, we were talking about it on the way up, and I, and I kind of awkwardly hinted at it. On, on, uh, on stage earlier, but growing up as a kid in Canada, there wasn't, you know, there was the Kids in the Hall, there was SCTV, but there was, you know, not a lot you could latch onto, especially in the realm of, of TV comedy that you felt was like your kind of comedy. So now to have, you know, your show, and, and there's a few other ones that are, are funny right now, but it feels like there's a new wave and a new breath kind of breathed into it. Did you ever feel like you needed to react to what you saw on Canadian television? Was that? Well, I had the same feeling that you did, and, and so did my friends who I make the show with, that there's a bizarre, almost like a double lie growing up as a Canadian, because for whatever reason, you're always told, oh, Canadians are the funniest people in the world. Canadians are hysterical. But then you would look at any Canadian content whatsoever, other than the kids in the hall, and be like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> this all sucks. Or you go to see Canadian comedians or stand-up comedians in Toronto and be like, what am I missing? How can our national identity be Canadians are the funniest 
and yet everything produced that's comedy in Canada be not only unfunny, unwatchable. Like, so embarrassing that you wouldn't even show it to people from other countries. Yeah. And, and if you went to other countries and be like, so name, you know, some Canadian comedy that you know, they couldn't tell you anything. SCTV is, was like sort of like a little flash, and then the kids in the hall was a flash, and then that's it. The rest are like people like Jim Carrey or the people that go to the States and are basically de facto Americans. Um, so it was, it was quite confusing. Well, it's almost like that in music. And I think, you know, well, I, I think, think all of us can talk about that. You yeah. have to kind of make it in America in a way. Well, when it goes with Canadians, I think like SCTV having like John Candy and, you know, Eugene Levy and like all these people that went on to go do stuff in the States. I think that was like the marker, unfortunately, of like making it. So like there, there is a, like so many export Canadian exports that are hilarious. Of course. Right. And it just seems that that's the problem with Canadian television is it, that it gets exported. And that Americans, you know, Eugene Levy shows up in the American comedy scene and Americans are like, oh, it's just an American. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, Jim Carrey. Oh, is, he's not an American. Oh, that's a shock to me. <laughs> I would have said he was an American. So, like, they don't bring their identity culturally with them no, 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 at absolutely. all. Yeah, and I, well, and I think, you know, why would you? <laughs> like, if you're like, oh, I'm, I'm from that place up there that you guys kind of ignore. Like, you know, like, it, it, I just think you would want to shed that as mm -hmm. soon as you could, and so you could make it. But now it seems like, in a post-Drake world, we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Well, so just, Drake comes up all the time on this podcast. I'm not, I don't even think I've ever heard a whole record, but it's something that I am constantly fascinated by. Well, we say that uh, when people ask us why we set the show in Toronto and why we weren't, we're not pretending that it's some other city. Uh, the answer is, well, it seems like Toronto is having a real relevant cultural moment because of Rob Ford, Drake, and the Blue Jays. Like the, <laughs> yeah, the weekend the you have... Uh, right, I know, but I'm talking about like the big the things big ones. that people... Justin like, Bieber... You know, but Bieber's another one of those weird ones. Because Bieber. Bieber's not saying Toronto, Toronto, Toronto. I don't think people associate Bieber with the city of Toronto right. in the as same much way as they Drake. Do Drake. Fair. Um, and in fact, Bieber more like he makes the country look bad. I think in the public, <laughs> media, the, the image fair. of him. Well, I know what you're saying because like you know, I think we never had in Canada an aspirational music celebrity, like a celebrity where as a younger kid you were like, when I grow up, I want to be just like Brian Adams. Yes. <laughs> I just want to be just like Celine Dion. But like, you know, now with Drake, there is that kind of celebrity where you're like, oh, I want to be famous like Drake. Like, I want to be famous like Drake. <laughs> and it's achievable. Which uh, is not for me. You were, but I mean, for, the, for, the, for a young person oh, yeah, growing up, yeah. they're thinking, you know, like, Drake's nothing special. It's not like he's, like, a, a member of the royal family. It's not like he had a super famous parent. Mm -hmm. Like, it is actually an achievable dream. Mm -hmm. If Drake did it, I could do it. I mean, I guess he was on Degrassi, but... <laughs> yeah, but even then, it's like, I think that is more of a disservice. If you're, like, if you're trying to make it in, in any type of music and you're, like, a child actor... And, and from Canada, and, and you're then going to make it as a, as like the biggest rapper in the world. Like I'm like that that child actor thing that didn't give you a leg up. That was like a you know a leg down. I think <laughs> wheelchair Jimmy. I think like Drake would have been more popular without that meme in the pre meme content. Right? I think that speaks to your point though about Canadian media is it's so heavily ignored that that never played a major factor in derailing his coolness. Yeah, being a rapper, being a legitimate rapper, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, well, I tell you, we could just talk Drake all night. this is going to be. But I think you're, but it is funny how, like, now we live in a world where, you know, like, and, you know, you guys were doing incredible music beforehand, but it was almost like once, I don't know, maybe this is just how I felt at Much Music at the time working there. Mm -hmm. I'm a failed VJ, too. Um, <laughs> at the time when I was there, 
it felt like once America was like a tribe called Red are awesome, and it started being talked about in American media and blogs. Everyone at Much Music was like, "A tribe called Red is awesome," <laughs> and it really and it like and I feel the same way in my band and like. Yeah, you know, I'm sure with you guys yeah. too. Someone in Boston gives a shit, and kids here are like, well, "Maybe should we give a shit?" Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bounces off the states and backs up here. But we're at this point That's now where it's not happening anymore. We're at a point now where we're 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 uh, we're uh, seeing a seeing a change. You know, young people today probably don't feel the same way that they used to do about that. Hmm. Do you know what's really interesting? My daughter is aspiring to be a YouTuber. My nine-year-old daughter. Like, she sees that these are who she looks up to now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this is her, her media. This is her, like, what she watches on, on like, she watches YouTube. She wa My wife bought, <laughs> bought our kid, well, we bought our kids uh, iPods because my wife grew up listening to music and was like, this is something I want my daughters to have, listening to music in their, in their, <laughs> in their be bedrooms and screaming loud and all that. Nope, they got YouTube and started watching <laughs> yeah. YouTube right away. So these are like these are just new things that we're gonna have to deal with. That like you know the generation before like they sing songs about video games that I've never even heard of yeah. or like understand, and they like it like that. Yep. Just like we liked it like that. You know, like they're they're a part of something that we have no idea about, and they like that they can talk to their friends about this game that I know nothing about. But I, I think like it's even uh, it starts even younger. You know, like I my guess. kids are like. <laughs> Four. Yeah, you're and they're on, like, and they have every. T I'm like today. I was like, there's He-Man on Netflix. We can start from the beginning. There's 46 episodes. Yeah, we can go like one a day. And there's Shiro. We can alternate. And they were like, mm, we're gonna watch this guy play with Paw Patrol toys on this YouTube channel yeah. that has eight million views on it with like two million subscribers. Just like, I know. <laughs> what are these things? I know. And also, when I got fired from Much Music, they laid us all off, and then they hired like a team of YouTubers. Mm -hmm. Oh that's wow. They replaced. They started the Much Studio, and it was mm. just a team of YouTubers, and that's when I knew. Start a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, and I guess it's like that half-joking uh, thesis that I wanted to put forward before we started talking. But, like, it, it is like that, where there, there's, it's, it's a complete change. Like, it's not like the shift from, like, 1995 to 2000. Mm -hmm. Like, we are, we are looking at a whole new rise in, in celebrity and in culture. Like, that guy PewDiePie... Like, obviously, that was a, a colossal flame-out. But at the same time, like, I didn't even know this guy existed. Maybe but he's either. watched by billions of people. And I consider myself in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> he was like this, like, YouTuber who... Hey, look it up. It's a, okay. it, was <laughs> a thing. it was a whole thing. <laughs> like, you gotta watch videos. I feel like it's okay if I don't know it. Yeah. Can we get YouTube on this? Can we get YouTube on this? <laughs> <laughs> I love some videos. Um, but no, it's like, it's really changed. And, like, yeah. it, it's funny because you... I was, I, you know, like, I've, I've seen some failed network shows in my time, and I was on this thing that failed miserably, and you're watching the count on YouTube, and it's like a big network putting tons of money into it. Meanwhile, there's a kid with just their web camera talking to it that's able to smoke them in how many people are getting that message. Like, mm. just completely crush them. And it's like, we are seeing some seismic shifts happen right now in our lifetime in media. Mm -hmm. And the content. Yeah, it probably felt like this when the TV came out too. I don't know, maybe. Probably. But it, like, yeah, maybe because it's like it's a way different way to get uh, voices out there. Like your whole this all started from web series, right? Yep, yeah, it did. So and, and that was YouTube was just a year old when our show first came out. Wow. We didn't even put it on YouTube because there was too much copyrighted material on it. So YouTube kept pulling it. So we just had to host it on our own <laughs> site. But it, that that's definitely how it began um, because it's a way for young people to. 
distribute their stuff for free. Without, yeah. Well, music is the same way. Exactly. People are distributing their music for free on the internet. The difference, and what I think is, it, what's bizarre is, so someone like PewDiePie, if you don't know, he's the most, he's the most subscribed YouTuber in the world. He has 53, 54, maybe even more million subscribers. <laughs> And, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's a, he's a, he he's doesn't a, have a cell phone. Unless <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking to him, I'm like, can you just text me your address? He's like, no, I physically can't text you. My I got address. a phone. I got a phone last December. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was the first time I got a Luddites. phone. Luddites. Not like me with my fancy laptop no, over here. I'm not sold on it. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I think it's a cycle. I don't know. But you know what? That's actually a part of this story, and that's that Pootie Pie for his he's a millionaire many times over, oh, yeah. and yet. Hollywood for that? Just yeah. for just for making videos on, on YouTube. But what? we fucked up. He he, he plays video games <laughs> and you sort of just watch him play the video yeah. games. Oh, okay. I know that sounds bizarre. This is but what my kids watch. <laughs> yeah, people yeah, 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 are obsessed yeah. with it. But that's not translating to broad media in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. So someone like you will never be exposed to a star like that because Hollywood hasn't found out a way to translate mm. that type of celebrity into a movie or a TV show on actual TV. In fact, there's very few cases of a YouTube personality becoming an actual media persona. Mm -hmm. It almost never happens. And it's because of this weird alchemy that you're talking about where how can PewDiePie with a camera and a microphone with zero production value get 50 million views on a video whereas a network television show on YouTube with way more resources can't get anything. Mm -hmm. And it's the same reason that it doesn't work in the inverse way either. You can't put PewDiePie on a network television show and have it work. So some, something is going on that is not really quantifiable. But like I think like you know not the same thing exactly. But you have someone like Marin, who Mark Marin, who's now kind of translated into that other world. Like I think is it just a matter of time before we do have, like God forbid we're doing this, but sitting in a film festival setting watching YouTube videos, like just someone in front of their laptop computer screen like talking. Well, I think that's the problem. No, we never will because audiences in a theater or audiences on television are expected to be told stories in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the people with a talent for making YouTube videos very rarely also have a narrative talent. They very rarely can translate to that type of storytelling, which humanity is so used to, mm. right? I mean, our show started as a web series, but it was exactly the same as this with a very clear structure and story. And it really defied what internet videos are, which is very, very quick stuff, very personality driven. Mm. Um, and so I don't think that that future ever will exist. I think the private life of the viewer is going to be watching weird videos on YouTube of people doing nonsense, and it doesn't necessarily need some kind of narrative. But television watching and movie watching, that you can't take a story out of that. It's impossible. People won't sit through it. Mm -hmm. you, I mean, try sitting down with a group of people in a theater this size and putting on like very, very specific YouTube videos. Mm. You might get one person interested or maybe three, but it'll be an excruciating experience. <laughs> when that cat gets scared by its own fart, that would translate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could all watch that very willingly right now. That guy's shaking his head, no, we'll not watch that video. <laughs> it's funny, it's shock. But like, I think, you know, you don't, maybe it maybe won't be like this context, but will you have that person find a way to to, to take it to that next, like to bring their their brand, because it's almost like there's a sense of humor on YouTube, like a very, like the YouTubers, there's a specific type of humor. It's almost like the type of comedy that's mainstream comedy now is what was super sophisticated comedy in the 90s. So YouTube's almost been like a reaction, like, no, here's the base level of comedy again. Yeah, Here really good go. editing and like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like just like like you know like this was this is an incredibly sophisticated show mm -hmm. like the like you know like this isn't 
dumb comedy, you know, and like Mr. Show and like that's not dumb comedy and like you know we live like you know Hannibal Buress is not dumb comedy, but like that's become mainstream comedy, so there has to be room for dumb comedy, and maybe that's YouTube now. And and dumb might not even be the word. The no, word no you're right. The, but I, I don't. I, no, I don't mean that to say that you're. It is dumb, but it's not dumb for the reasons you'd think. It's dumb because the people watching it are ten years old and younger. Like those. That is. I mean, it's your children yeah. who are watching Pootie Pie, right? Like the the audience base is built of people who haven't even gone through puberty yet. So of course they're going to want to see One Step Above Paw Patrol, yeah. which is some adult acting like a buffoon playing a video game. Like it's very easy for children to look at that and be like, oh my god, this is awesome. <laughs> and it's a, another great reason why an adult watching that same performer in a movie will be like, this is ridiculous, I'm leaving. Mm -hmm. This guy's a, a fool, I can't stand this, right? They, it, it may just be the demographics of the people watching YouTube are so unbelievably young that anything sophisticated or anything beyond a guy with a camera screaming or a woman putting on her makeup, I mean, think of what kids are interested in. Right? They want to see adults being adults. But it's got to be more than just kids, right? Like, oh, I know. I'm just saying that the core of it is the kids. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. that's what's driving these people to have the millions of subscribers they mm -hmm. have, which mm -hmm. creates a snowball effect. But I mean, again, I don't know. And this is a question <laughs> for an anthropologist. <laughs> yeah. Right? I just feel like it, when I watch that stuff, I'm like, wow, I can understand why very, very young tweens would be obsessed with this. Well, like, mm -hmm. that's like, you know, it's funny because, like, YouTube videos are like Nickelback. Like you never know anyone that who, enjoys who, it who will say that they like. Yeah, like I'm like I watch this mean? video. I watch YouTube all the time. No, I like, like subscribe to like, no, I mean, but like channels. But YouTube versus the the medium of YouTubers is okay. a very different thing, Fair. right? Like uh, I watch I watch the breakdown Thompson Square Park video <laughs> once a week on YouTube. I follow like uh, I'm really into we were talking podcasts oh, yeah. earlier and like murder podcasts and like uh, <laughs> ghost stuff and like you know the sea monsters and all this. So there's like a lot of like unexplained top ten mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. things that I follow that I check out all the time. No, I watched those before they were famous thing with that really smarmy guy who does the takedowns of like rappers. Like <laughs> you might you know him as Stitches, but before he was Stitches, he was Steve. <laughs> Idol, <laughs> and then it like shows like a high school picture. <laughs> what was he like? <laughs> I'm Stitches. serious. Yeah, yeah. What was Stitches? Did not have like, why? I understand that. <laughs> this is the dude, and also this dude who's doing it. It's like. Clearly, you do not want us to bring up your high school picture. Bring <laughs> <laughs> up every famous rapper's high school picture. <laughs> I don't think, but he, he was a he was a normal dude in a prep school, according to this YouTube video. But that's maybe so. I'm guilty. I just admitted that I like the Nickelback of media content. Isn't that the storyline? Isn't that the storyline of Eight Mile? Is like the rapper was like went to. No. Have you seen Eight Mile? You've never seen Eight Mile? I've seen Eight Mile, but it does not sound anything like Stitches. <laughs> not Stitches, but like the rapper that he was battling against was from a prep oh, school. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. That was when a switch. You ruined it, Ian. You <laughs> spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. That's not the end of Eight Mile. Eminem loses, humiliatingly. <laughs> I remember being in a record store and this guy came in. He's like, I've just seen the Rocky of our generation. And it was Eight Mile. Eight Mile. <laughs> <laughs> it was Josh Reichman from the Tangents. But like, you know, but but still, I will say, Eight Men, Eight Mile is better than any Pootie Pie video that I've seen. Mm. I've never seen a Pootie Pie video. You're not missing out, Ian. I think we've established yeah, yeah, yeah. that. 
I think we've yeah. definitely added a couple more subscribers though, because we're all going to be trying to <laughs> checking it out. What is this guy that they've been talking about so much? <laughs> but it's like it's 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 funny because like as we're seeing these shifts happen in comedy and in TV and stuff, it's happened in music. Oh like, yeah, we're already on the other side of whatever destroyed and was rebuilt mm -hmm. in its place. Back to this idea, like what, what you brought up, like the physical copy thing, mm -hmm. like have owning something. I, I understand owning it and and have and wanting that, but without like the internet and and uh, the accessibility of it and getting your music out there, a tribe called Red wouldn't be as big as we are. One hundred percent. Like it was social media that got us where we were. Um, most of our music was put out on SoundCloud before we got a manager who told us you should probably put that together and make like a package of an album, <laughs> which ended up being our first <laughs> album. And uh, but yeah, with with I, f I think that like not the big change right now. We have to figure this out. And 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 I like being able to like subscribe to stream things and listen to like one or two songs from an album that I find shitty otherwise. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> Views being one of them. But carry on. Oh, <laughs> hey, oh. I've never heard it. <laughs> Clearly established on this show. Just like to bring it up as yeah. a thing. Um, but like I think it was funny because we yeah. Uh, Chris and I went down to a Turn It A Punk live tour, and we went to the Discord house, and we, we Ian wow. Mackay, yeah, name drop, we went to the Discord house. <laughs> we just basically hung around till Ian Mackay had to come over to tell us to leave, was pretty much what, <laughs> how, how it went down. Um, but in that time, we were like talking, and he's like, you know, there could be another Fugazi, there could be another Fugazi. And I'm like, there couldn't be, because you guys were able to sell through 30,000 copies of a record. So you could be completely independent from all corporations. You could be independent from ticket gouging and ticket master because you had a huge chunk of money that no artist today can pull from. And he's like, no, it could happen. It, it, it couldn't happen now. And I'm, believe me, as a band named Fucked Up, I acknowledge the internet is the only reason that I'm on this stage right now. Like it would not be, it would not have happened in any way, shape or form without the internet. But at the same time, like, you won't have like you know a truly independent entity like you did with a group like Fugazi or you did with like other artists that were able to sell their wares or like just musicians that would pull up at a club and have you know like a trunk full of CDs and they'd sell their yeah. CDs you know like uh, it's, Too Short made a career out of selling his CDs. Who's that guy in Toronto uh, who claimed to have moved a million units? On the street, he was on Queen Street all the time. Was, was very it G Money from Twinfold? No, his name his name had a PH like like uh, I wish I could remember. But just like selling it from people on the yeah, street? just moving discs, moving hip hop discs, and and everybody had told me he'd moved a million discs, and I thought that was complete bullshit because <laughs> how, many, how many hip hop <laughs> yeah. artists in Canada have ever moved, moved a, million a million records? Yeah. Like free Drake, members. free Drake, <laughs> yeah, free Drake, like uh, the only. Yeah, and so, but that was this legend that in the 90s and mid-2000s when I had first started living in Toronto, I would see this guy all the time and I didn't know anybody in the music industry but Jay McCarroll, the other guy yeah. in the show with me, did. And the rumor was this guy had moved a million units just on the street. Mm. And I have not seen a person selling music in Toronto since, you know, 2008, 2009. Yeah. That used to be all over the place. Casper, yeah. man. Casper, oh, right. Yeah, he's just performing live though. Yeah. yeah? But like you used to always have someone like, hey, you listen to this type of music, buy the CD. Exactly. There was a guy in front of the bovine all the time that had hip hop stuff out of a CD. Out of the back. Yeah, yeah. And it, and but it, a million seems really high. But like that, yeah, that's what I said. It's I cool. still think there is a lot of stuff that can. I, I think there's a place that sort of things that are kind of sleeper DIY hits can. I always think of Godspeed. 
Because if you think about that, they play, I mean, Toronto, those couple of years, they just went like boom, 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 boom. But every kind of kid you know has, I mean, I have all, all but, that stuff. Indie kids had it, punk kids had it. And they sold those like one by one over a table at a show. And I'm not talking Tens shit. Tens of thousands of Because I've taken the government money. Oh, the cheap. But they took the government money. You know, and that's not talking shit. But like Ian Mackay didn't have to take the government money. You know, and, and they didn't take it directly. It's a label. Like, I'm not talking shit because it's just like, it's just a reality. Like, you're not going to sell 20,000 physical copies as a band on tour anymore because kids just don't want to buy 20,000 physical. They might buy 20,000 shirts, but it just doesn't happen for physical media. Mm. And I guess it speaks to what you're saying about not using some kind of a, you know, a sort of the, like, the looming specter of corporatism in some regard. But they might buy or they will buy 20,000 digital copies of something. But then you're still like you're you're like that's the different like with Fugazi you could have that record and it could go to a distro that's owned by this kid. Well, obviously the manufacturing process and like the plastics and things like that. Yeah. But like you know that that whole chain of money is kept within a, a punk community. But now it's like you have to give iTunes a piece. You have to give Rogers a piece. Don't worry, I'm taking a piece from them back too because you too. But uh, <laughs> but like you know they get they all get a piece now. Like they you know like uh, you know iTunes takes a huge chunk like it's it's not like what it was when you could sell a ten dollar record and you're like this cost me five dollars it costs so that's a five dollar profit that we walk away from as a band that will help pay for gas or whatever to get to the next show and it's very spoiled that i'm acting like this you know like <laughs> like as a musician like why should i feel that people should buy my art as a record like you know i shouldn't like it's ridiculous to feel that way but you're you buy it you have one of the biggest and most in-depth record collections I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, you're, but it's like a disease more than like, I'm not saying anyone should walk this path. It's more like a cautionary tale. I, I think in a moment where things are so disposable and a lot of it is the digital age, the fact of something like records coming back sort of, I feel bratty, but it pisses me off as a record nerd mm -hmm. because it makes it really hard for people that never stopped making records in the first place. Mm -hmm. And also because it's companies that put that shit out to pasture themselves when it stopped making money. Like I was, I grew up and that was just the format at the store still, right? But that, think of the way you look at CDs now, they're sitting in a box somewhere in a corner waiting to be thrown in a garbage can. That was like records were punched and the covers were torn like yeah. to get rid of them. So I love that it's a thing again and I understand why because it's unnecessarily physical object to have a bunch of liner notes to pull out and read and you have to really like invest yourself in it intentionally and so much stuff digitally just goes past your consciousness like a million things at a time and just shoot out the other end. And you have to like want and really take something in to want to hold it in your hands like that. And we're also, I just think as a, as like a, a culture, whatever, like we don't have room for physical space now. Like my brother just moved into an apartment and he has a record collection and, it, and he's, they're having a child. Congratulations, Tristan. Congratulations, Tristan. Tristan. Hey. Um, but they, he has to move the records. Like he has to get rid of his records yeah. because you there's not enough room in an apartment and he's got a job that, that pays him well so he's able to get a nice place but like still the, the amount of space X amount of dollars will buy you is less than it was probably yesterday mm. definitely less than it was 10 years ago when people were still talking about the argument about whether or not you should still buy books and CDs it's almost like we're moving to a world where by necessity it has to be digital for all our information because there's no space for and there's also no resources to produce this stuff anymore what do you mean, right? Well, like the environmental cost on the, on vinyl is like that's a petroleum product. Like I love it, but oh my god, it's not good. To <laughs> you make got it. a lot of oil in your a lot of oil. <laughs> you know, like I'm I like you know I, I know it's bad, and I know like we're moving towards a more environmentally sound world, 
Mm. But there will not be another Fugazi. <laughs> it's depressing to think where that's going for books and for mm -hmm. film, like we were talking about the video store. I can't imagine where down the line if you don't, and once you completely phase that stuff out and you don't have any thing in front of your face to make you think of it. I, I wouldn't want to live like that at all. It's, it's almost like though we're entirely like that. It's almost like we're gonna lose our, our retail sections downtown as part of what we have to do to make space for people. Hmm. Like you don't really need shopping centers anymore because you can just order all your stuff, it's delivered to your door. So we have all these spaces, like how many empty record stores and bookstores and video stores and are now just dollar stores sitting around Toronto. Like eventually those will just become converted to living spaces for people. That will be streaming their music instead of buying <laughs> it at the store, <laughs> streaming their video. Question I have in relation to the making the TV show and everything of that nature: Has your process changed with this new consideration of it being a non-physical entity? I know you started as a web sort of thing to begin with, so you kind of were birthed in this era. But now that you see it being implemented in a really efficient manner, where it is getting to people. With in a you know YouTube's a great example of course, but like do you approach making things differently now than you would have initially with any of those, these considerations? No, but that's because when we started, we were just putting the stuff directly out to the web, and it's still exactly the same now. Uh, what I think the big challenge and change for filmmakers and musicians is that the the reality that's being talked about on the stage, which is like you know the guy selling the disc on the corner or the creating the physical copy and you know sending it out spending all this money what fugazi did to make all these records that is there's a there's another side to that which is that they are by proxy creating a huge barrier to entry mm -hmm. for the common person mm -hmm. to make music or to make movies and it's there i mean it's it's just by the nature of having to actually produce these discs and that barrier to entry comes with a stamp of quality that people were willing to recognize no matter what you know you walk down the street in 1994 and there's somebody selling you CDs you're not thinking that this is a complete joke. They did go through the effort of printing a CD. Mm -hmm. It's 1994, that's fucking hard to do, right? It's not like now where somebody's like, oh, stream my music. Yeah. It's like, I could put music together on my computer and give it to you. So the access to tools has been a blessing for people like me because I can make a stupid web show with my friends that cost no money and put it on the internet. But it's also lowered the bar tremendously for people's attention because now, I hear about some new band or I hear about some new show and it's like, oh yeah, they just made it and put it on the internet. Or they just made this music, put it on the internet. It's like, well, it sounds shitty. <laughs> just because there isn't that, that, they didn't have to go through an extremely strenuous process to create it. In the same way that movies back in the day were almost impossible to make huh. when you're shooting on film. The way that music back in the day was impossible to make, you're recording to tape, you need to use a studio. Like that, that barrier to entry meant only the very serious people were fucking around with it. And it kind of gave it some sort of accountability, right? Like Huge. somebody, like, to get that CD made and get a lot made, like, you had to have somebody to believe in you enough or you had enough money to get it done. But I think it's I mean? also because the attention spans aren't there anymore for these great works of art that take forever to make. I right? beg like, to differ. Well, I don't Lemonade, know. Lemonade, to, uh, to Pippa Butterfly. But, like, like those, those are records like, are big and they definitely will be talked about, but their moments are not like they would have been like when uh, Purple Rain came out, or mm. when uh, I still play Sergeant Pepper till infinity. No, and, and yeah, people, yeah, 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 to it. Right? And people are going to listen to it. But I think <laughs> I think at the same time, it's just like you know, they used to talk about how your album cycle would be two years. You could yeah. have a two-year album cycle. Now it's three months. Yeah, easy. Three sure. months, and then it's it's over. Like people are just like, yeah, like so. 
the idea of spending like, you know, two years working on a piece of art that's going to be appreciated for three months, it's like, but this person beside me spent 20 minutes on this song. And it's, but it's also like that, like even in, 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 in corporate like entities like look at like snapchat getting sold for how much did they just get sold for like they, they, they didn't even turn a profit yet they went they they sold for IPO, like right? billions they went, they, they, they oh they but they got the sold first yeah. remember when they got sold for oh, yeah. like 13 month old company for billions of dollars like it was like 14 billion dollars for like being a company for 13 months like the idea of wealth like all of a sudden is being changed where it, it was something that that needed to be protected and handed down hereditary through families now a dude comes up and like makes something up and you got billions of dollars. Like it's not something to be, and I think that that also has to do with like the the scaredness of like a lot of the conservatives within North America and why they're like reacting the way they are because their their hereditary money is being <laughs> challenged mm -hmm. and and that that uh, access to to that that money gets you is is being given to regular folk all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Who have good ideas on the internet, and I think that that's what like talks to like being able to make a TV show and getting that picked up, being able to put out music and having that picked up. Um, it just makes it so that uh, uh, we all kind of have a chance and a voice, and that's yeah. like that's the big difference. Where before, if you needed something published, if you needed something uh, uh, made, like again, like it was the accountability, you but it was permission. Permission. Mm -hmm. It was still these people that like it was still like you know these people that said, "This is what you need to be listening to." I'm going to be the tastemaker. Now you can just mm -hmm. go out and find whatever you want. There's like, you know, if you're into 85 grindcore, right? I bet you you can find like a, a website or a, a, a fan community that you can go hang out with. In, in 85, you, you could not find another person to like in any small town too. You know what I mean? So you can build these relationships and these, these uh, friendships and identities um, virtually without having to... to find those people out anymore and go to those shows and have to go see uh, 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 Ian McKay on, on either Minor Threat or Fugazi and have to buy their things physically. Like He's able to get out his, his idea of, of, of uh, straight edge without having to talk to these kids face to face. You know what I mean? Like if he was able, I, I wonder what he'd do now. If like, you know, Minor Threat was starting now and he had access with the internet, what would happen? Oh, what would the God. DIY look like? Ian when Minor Threat was around had Twitter, we <laughs> would not be talking about him now. Trust me on that. <laughs> right? Trust it's me It's true, though. That. You know, and, and, and Cocteau, film reference everyone, said that film would only become a true art form when it was as cheap as pencils and paper because mm. that's when anyone could do it. And I think with punk, the, the, the great thing about punk, more than the music, was that was when rock and roll finally went through like a mannerist stage where the means of production were in the hands of the artist. People could make tapes, fanzines, mm -hmm. created their own mm -hmm. record labels, things well, like that's that. That's where it started, right? Like punk magazine yeah. started it and it was all DIY. It was all like, fuck this, let's do our own shit. Well, it's the, and, it's, and even like, just like the, the idea of just doing a band where like, you know, you hear a band like the Desperate Bicycles, like they don't sound like a rock band that any label would ever want to put out, yet their mm -hmm. music's like, a million times more vital than anything I could ever hope to put out, right? Fair. Like, they are that amazing, but yeah. yet that was the DIY thing. But like you said, all of these barriers were not necessarily like a, like, they were just like a, a quality assurance. So now it's just harder to wade through everything. Oh, definitely. But there's so much more out there. There's so much more. <laughs> and that part is good, but things like Bandcamp, like I love that angle of it, that mm. it, takes middlemen out of the equation mm -hmm. that anyone that's got a band can stick something up and people can get to it without having to go through a bunch of channels. And they can pay a band, whether it's like $2 for an album or something, directly. Mm -hmm. I like 
that part and the fact that it's harder hard to censor which is being more and more of a thing too, yeah absolutely like it's direct absolutely but you get it that way and then you still have a culture as a is a thing with people in a room you know what I mean yeah so you have to go from there and still have like a, a thing you go to do after that I think that's kind of the danger of, of it only being taken in on that level on one side in a bunch of like isolated yeah relationships well and also the thing is this could be shut down at any moment like you know not to get super sinister and too you know too high to to get to the dark thoughts <laughs> coming out but like but this could be shut down at any moment. Like, let's say... Net neutrality shows up. And let's, like, yeah, like, or, or let's say we get uh, uh, someone from Shark's Den as our prime minister, and they're like, you know what? <laughs> Rogers, that would never happen. He's like, Rogers and Bell, like, no dissenting music is going to come across those pipelines anymore into people's houses. You know, like, I'm not... Those companies would probably... Why would they let there. a reality TV idiot run a company? <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> too weird. That would They let a guy who talked to a chimp run the country at one point, so, you know... I, Doug Henning, I wanted that to happen. Well, that would have been awesome. It would have been. It, I think anything would have been better than what's potentially on the horizon. Um, but like you know, it could all be shut down. Whereas if you had people that met together communally, ideas would be exchanged in person. You know, you can't monitor their conversations. You can't, you know, pick through their emails because yeah. they're talking face to face. Like we, we were talking about a, a, a movement. Not a good movement, not a celebratory movement when I say a movement, but a, a movement called Hardline, which was like a super militant straight-edge thing. And they communicated through letters, they communicated back and forth, but there's a reason they were able to, to blow up McDonald's and to like blow up fur places and to do shit is because they weren't tracked. And it, only when they exposed themselves by talking to other people that they eventually got caught. But like, it, it's now like, you know, it would be really easy to shut something like that down very quickly because, you know, unless you're using Signal. Sure, but at the on the other hand, we didn't have I don't know more. We didn't have Black yep. Lives Matter. We didn't have yep. Arab Spring. You yep. know what I mean? Like these are these are revolutions. These are hashtags yep. like that are named after hashtags. So, uh, um, yeah, like you know what I mean? Like you, we sure you would be able to to um, monitor. You would have been able to monitor those hardline people. But we wouldn't have had Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We wouldn't have had I don't know more. We wouldn't. So like there, there is like another side to that, to that coin. Yeah, that's true. Well, it looks like we're not going to decide anything. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird how it went. We didn't figure this out. Shoot. I thought we were going to part two. It part out. two. Part two. <laughs> Y'all want to come over to my house and do a part two sometime? We'll smoke weed. Smoke weed. Hell yeah. I got a bong here, but I don't think they'd be too stoked if I like. <laughs> I brought like a little travel bag in case it felt like that vibe where like, oh, they're gonna let me smoke weed here. Do you guys need proof of that? <laughs> I've seen him, he really does it. I really, it's not just for show. No. Uh, <laughs> There's science involved. There's high tech stuff. Well, Todd, this is, if you could, do you want to just transition completely into a weed go, podcast go right now? Because I can do that. Crazy science. Get the fuck off the stage, yeah. Christy. Chris, Ian, move right up, buddy. For real. Smoke weed? No. Oh, no. Oh, get the fuck off this stage. Okay. Uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much, everyone, for sticking around. Really appreciate it. Uh, Nirvana, the band, the show, I think we all know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the show. Thank you to Matt, Ian, Chris, Chris, 
and uh, uh, I guess myself um, and you for listening to the show and Dave House for being on the show as well. What an amazing blockbuster, spectacular event. Sorry for the delays. Once again, thank you to La Paz Bolivia for being so beautiful and providing such an amazing backdrop. Thank you to my good buddy Colin for remaining so quiet while I recorded this extra. And uh, once again, I will see you hopefully next week. Definitely next week. I'm going to make sure it comes out next week because I'm going to be back home. So I'm going to be back on schedule. Footnotes will be coming out. Oil and flowers. All the fun stuff when I get home. Yay. Uh, But next week on the show, Someone I've wanted to have on the show forever, forever. One of the original people on my list, Spencer from Trash Talk, next week on the show. One of the most influential bands of this era, an incredibly important band. I can't wait for you to hear this. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you next week. Remember, this shit's easy. Go out and make your own culture because maybe one day you could be making a wrestling TV show in Bolivia while recording a podcast featuring all your friends. What a life. Thank you very, very – Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I will see you next week.